Welcome to the Azure Podcast, a weekly podcast to keep you up to date on what's new on our cloud platform, Microsoft Azure. Your hosts, Cynthia Crane, Evan Basilic, Suji DeMello, Kenno Roden, Kel Teeter, and Russell Young discuss a different service or solution on each show with subject matter experts to explain how to get started, how different services work, and how to make decisions in tricky scenarios. You can find out more about our podcast at azpodcast.com or follow us on Twitter at Azure Podcast. Well, welcome back to the Azure Podcast. This is episode number 461 being recorded on the 23rd of May, 2023 with special guest, Dave Salvador. I'm Sajid and on teams with me, we have of course our special guest, Dave and Russell, uh, who we, and we're gonna get to Dave in just a minute, but first uh, Russell, let's just cover some of the news. Uh, uh, that you have today. And, um, you know, I know the build is probably going on uh, as we speak here. So there's probably a lot to talk about, you know, in the next few episodes of all the build updates. And uh, we do have uh, some special uh, news today as well with Dave uh, that, that would also be timed uh, with the build with the Microsoft build. So, uh, but let's cover some of the news that we uh, we have uh, already. Uh, you, had, you had a couple uh, in the hopper. Yeah, just one one that looks really interesting that caught my eye was around a new kind of storage um, platform storage um, service called Azure Container Storage. So it's it's in preview now, um, and this is a, a kind of a very tightly coupled native storage platform service that you can use um, that works really closely with Kubernetes. So you can create these uh, container storage pools. Um, that sit around your your container clusters um, that can scale up and down seamlessly and and integrate really well with Kubernetes. And it's backed, I think, by um, either Azure Elastic SAN, which is new, or or Azure Disks uh, on the back end. So you've still got all of the, the the resilience and reliability and duplication that you'd expect from Azure Storage as well. Um, but this is focused specifically at being a kind of a native to to Kubernetes and Azure Container Services um, system. So, so great for those kind of persistent storage and, and persistent uh, containerized applications that, that you need. So serving things like MySQL, um, Kafka, and Elasticsearch um, uh, across your containerized application. So that looks really exciting. Um, it's the first time I've seen it today, so I, I haven't delved into it a great deal, but it looks like something I'm gonna have to get my head around and uh, have a good play with later on. Yeah, indeed, that sounds good. And also uh, similar to uh, what you just described, also in the storage area, there is a new public preview for Azure Cold Storage now. <laughs> so we used to have Azure, uh, I guess, Hot and Archive, and now they have have a kind of tier for storage that's sort of between Hot and Archive, right? So it's something that you would use not so frequently, right? At the same time, it's not like Archive where you you know, you, you you kind of keep it for many many years, and you you know you, you probably never use it. This is for uh, data that you would use uh, less frequently. Uh, so uh, obviously the uh, the uh, the pricing is is better. So if you have information that you're going to let's say uh, access in the next over the next year or infrequently, uh, then there's this new tier available to you called cold storage. Uh, also, a couple of other updates. Uh, Open telemetry is a popular. Uh, stack for, uh, for for logging in most applications these days, all logging metrics, etc. And uh, and now there is uh, a distro uh, that kind of blends uh, the Azure Monitor uh, 
cloud observability with Open Telemetry, right? And you can use uh, things like uh, ASP.NET Core, JavaScript, Node.js, and Python now to uh, emit uh, Open Telemetry uh, traces and logs and metrics, et cetera, and have them captured by uh, Azure Monitor, right? And then kind of sucked into Azure Monitor like so it's all in one place for you, but your applications can use like most of the applications you can find on GitHub these days automatically enable open telemetry. And so this is a nice feature where they can be tied to Azure Monitor with uh, without much of a fuss. Uh, and then uh, the the final one I'll mention is the Azure Load Balancer. Uh, now ICMP pings are actually inbound, are supported in, in Azure Load Balancer. It used to be that uh, the the pings were ignored, so you'd have to use something like PS ping uh, to ping to probe a specific port, especially if you're troubleshooting access from the internet and you wanted to make sure that am I getting through to the inside uh, VNet, you'd have to use things like PS ping and uh, to just to probe specific ports. Now you could use ICMP ping. Uh, just the normal ping to see, okay, is the load balance alive? You know, is, is it responding? Uh, and not have to do something special. So those are some of the updates. Uh, I'm sure we'll have more as in the weeks to come. But for now, let's turn the mic over to our special guest, Dave. Uh, Dave, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, Dave's with uh, with NVIDIA, and I'm going to let him uh, introduce himself and uh, tell us what he does in NVIDIA and what his passion is in the Azure space so that we can talk about that. Sure. Good morning. It's great to be with you all. So as you mentioned, I'm Dave Salvatore with NVIDIA. I'm a director of accelerated computing products. And what that means is I work with our cloud partners, Azure in particular, I do quite a bit of work with around uh, enabling and helping sort of tell the story about some of the great technologies you were mentioning, and also talking quite a bit about a lot of the integration work that we've done together. Um, in addition, of course, offering GPU instances, Azure and NVIDIA engineering teams work very closely to bring NVIDIA software into the Azure platform environment to make sure that Azure customers can get the most out of their uh, GPU accelerated instances. And so that includes, you know, you mentioned, for instance, Kubernetes is an area we've done work in together. Um, a lot of integration into Azure ML, and we'll probably talk more about that today as, as, we, as we move through the discussion. And then um, just a whole wide variety of different enablings we do both for instances as well as software integrations. Yeah, so obviously this whole uh, thing with uh, with AI in Azure has, has has taken off in a big way recently. And you know, I as a software engineer, uh, or you know, want to wrap my head around that. See, like, what does it mean, right, for for the next generation of applications? We want to build applications that can leverage some of this, the technology that uh, Nvidia and Azure is providing. Mm -hmm. uh, what are some of the things that uh, NVIDIA is, uh, is is looking to release, uh, you know, in, into Azure to help uh, software engineers uh, take advantage of this uh, new paradigm of programming? Sure. Well, one of the big ones that we're talking about here at Build is, of course, our NVIDIA AI Enterprise, which is our software layer of our overall NVIDIA AI platform, right? We're going to be integrating that, making it available in the Azure marketplace, as well as integrating it into Azure ML. Um, this will make it much easier for Azure customers to take advantage of these programs, which bring sort of enterprise grade, both support and software to the cloud for those customers who are looking to deploy sort of industrial strength applications and need to know that they basically have full fledged support um, to be able to build those applications and, and basically troubleshoot them should trouble arise. And also just getting the most out of those applications to optimize both user experience as well as uh, operational cost. Now, uh, prior to uh, to this announcement, right? What was the experience that? Uh, what would uh, 
uh, application developers or enterprises have to do, right? If they wanted to use uh, uh, OpenAI or Azure ML uh, mm-hmm. features in Azure, uh, today, uh, before this uh, new announcement, what was the process for them to take advantage of these uh, of the platform? Sure. Well, so you can think of NVIDIA Enterprise as sort of taking what we call our NGC kind of to the next level. NGC is basically our container repository for all the great software that we make available to the community, right? That includes, of course, uh, all the popular frameworks. It includes our own application frameworks for building uh, sort of domain-specific applications. Um, it also includes pre-trained models, test scripts, um, Helm charts. I mean, a whole variety of tools and resources that we make available to the community, um, which were available, I believe, pre- previously through the marketplace, through what was called NGC. What NVIDIA AI Enterprise does is it takes all that and brings it sort of under one roof. In addition, it also then we've rolled out a very robust support platform so that Azure customers can basically get access to NVIDIA support as they're building their applications to ensure that they can get those applications built quickly and deployed so that those applications can start basically generating value for the for the teams and for the organizations building them. So just so I can get my head around it, I, I've always kind of heard that, you know, we've got GPUs available to, to do better AI processing, obviously running games, computing and all that kind of stuff as well. Mm-hmm. In all of those instances, do I, as a software developer, need to understand what the NVIDIA SDK looks like and make calls specifically into those SDKs? Or is there a kind of a way I can build an application and say, I, I want to switch on some support and use the, the GPU for doing some of this stuff to make it run really quick? So the, the answer is it depends, um, which is to say it depends on sort of what, what level you want to engage, right? You can go all the way down and be running basically bare metal CUDA code if you really want to. But if you want, there are plenty of other tools that allow you to engage at sort of a higher level with API calls that just make it easier to build applications, right? And in some cases, that's as simple as as um, adding a few lines of code in something like, say, TensorFlow or PyTorch to actually turn on acceleration um, and then use even, uh, you know, some of our more optimized data formats. As an example, uh, the default FP32 format in TensorFlow, I'll give you an example, uses something called TensorFloat32 or TF32, which we introduced in our Ampere generation of products. It uses a a couple less bits to describe the data, but for AI purposes, it's sufficient precision so that you get nice performance bounces without losing any accuracy, and it doesn't prevent any of your models from converging when you're trying to train them, right? So again, it's just a matter of kind of how you want to engage and how kind of deep uh, down the rabbit hole you feel like you want to go. Right, and when when I want to do the same within Azure, if I'm, if I'm in a VM, I guess it's just the same. I've got those options. If I'm not in a VM, what, what's the option there? That is a great question. Um, I believe, you know, again, it comes, there's sort of the matter of there are these higher level tools that Azure makes available, including Azure ML, of course, um, and you know the ability to in, interact with those and then access NVIDIA sort of specific acceleration once you've got the VM instantiated um, should be available through relatively simple API calls from within the Azure ML environment. Okay, thank you. Uh, Dave, you mentioned uh, Kubernetes and AKS. Obviously, that's AKS in in the, in the case of Azure. Uh, how's that integration done? Is it through uh, like an extension, like an AKS extension or something, or is it just a matter of uh, what you know the containers that you load up in AKS now can take advantage of some of the uh, uh, some of the repositories that you spoke of? So, in terms of how you can specifically be using AKS, um, we basically have support to automatically provision and manage. 
and scale K8s, right? Using our basically our GPUs and our NGC containers, right? And that's that's kind of how we we you know interact with the AKS service that that Azure offers. So it's ability, you know, an ability to kind of scale up, scale down, use orchestration. And then as an example, our Triton inference serving software can also integrate into AKS so that once your application is deployed, you can be doing, uh, you can leverage some of the features rather in uh, uh, Triton, which include things like auto scaling, as well as um, um, what we call uh, auto batching, right? These are both really slick uh, features in the in the server that allow you to, first of all, roll up and down compute as you need it. So when you think about the pay-as-you-go model, you know, we all know that once an app is deployed, you know, the demand pattern in terms of requests coming into that app can be spiky, right? You'll have times when it goes along at a fairly steady clip, and then at any given moment, you may have sort of have a transient. You may have a spike where suddenly you get a lot of demand, and you want to be able to meet that demand without compromising user experience, right? So that's where auto-scaling can come into play. And then uh, another one that's kind of, we may talk about this more in a few minutes as we talk about generative AI. Um, when you think about real-time services, which a lot of AI applications these days are now needing to run in either real-time or very close to real-time, um, as you guys probably know, when you're working with AI, you typically talk about you know trading throughput for latency, right? As you w- walk up batch sizes, you typically get better throughput. Uh, and this is, this is an inference-centric comment. But as you do that, you pay for it in the form of higher latency. Right. So what auto batching can do is it can basically you give it a latency budget. Let's just say 500 milliseconds as as an example. What it will do is it will walk the batch size up and down until it can dial in an optimal batch size within that latency budget. So if you think of 500 milliseconds as a sort of SLA, right, what you can do is make sure that you're getting the most throughput you can in those 500 milliseconds to get the most out of the compute that you're using while maintaining user experience and maintaining your SLA. That is cool. And you mentioned, uh, is it Trident? Is that the software that you call it? Is that how you said it? Yes, Trident uh, Inference Server Software. That's right. Uh-huh. And that's a separate <clears throat> software that NVIDIA uh, will make available as part of this? How does that fit into the AKS uh, deployment of your application, for example? Well, we actually make it available today, right? It's available from NGC. And as we're announcing here um, at Build, it will now become available through uh, NVIDIA AI Enterprise. And then again, it can integrate into AKS and then allow you to take your application and deploy it onto your VM using Triton. And then in addition to that, now get the support that we were describing a few minutes ago from NVIDIA to run that application to make sure that everything's running smoothly 24 seven. Okay, Uh, you mentioned generative AI and and that's the kind of topic that's on everyone's lips at the moment. I know I spend most of my time doing demos of Copilot and uh, and various other technologies like that at the moment. I talk about open AI. Um, Were were NVIDIA involved in in any of that kind of that big model build stuff? I know there's a lot of processing involved in in generating those large language models. And what's the story from NVIDIA's side? Oh, gosh, we've been so involved in large language models almost from the from the outset, right? I mean, if you sort of, you know, get a little bit in the wayback machine for a moment and, and run the tape back a couple of years, what you'd see is what really sort of kicked off large language models um, to get us kind of where we are now is is the transformer network architecture, right? Which was originally introduced by, by Google researchers a number of years ago. That's what ultimately powered BERT, which sort of in a lot of ways really took uh, natural language processing to this whole other level. I mean, we've been talking about natural language understanding and processing for decades, 
And the, the sort of joke term for it, in fact, I think it was even Bill Gates who coined the term, was it is a computationally unbound problem, <laughs> which is to say, you know, it is just such a language is hard to understand. Right. You know, you know, the words are relatively simple, but the context, the meaning, um, the social implications, there's all these subtleties to language that we have come so far in being able to bake into these models, um, which is, you know, and now with things like, of course, uh, ChatGPT and the great work being done by OpenAI that, you know, we a lot of that work is happening on A100 GPUs, actually, um, has really brought the state of the art forward um, so far and, and, and relatively uh, quickly. Right. So we continue to do our own work. We have, for instance, what we call our Nemo um, language model. And we now have a service we're offering through that, um, which will be available also coming to Azure later this year. Will be sort of our Nemo framework for building large language model applications. Right. And you can do any, uh, you know, a couple of different things with that. One of which is, of course, what's called fine tuning, where you can bring in your own data set and work with basically a pre-trained version of Nemo. Apply your own data set to give it some domain specific knowledge of the area you're looking to build your large language model to serve and then be able to deploy that quickly. And then, of course, you can sort of recycle and retrain on an as necessary basis to continue fine tuning over time as your incoming data set, you know, may change uh, and, and evolve over time. So you're kind of getting the, the, the conversational AI piece, the language understanding bit as your starter, then giving it a whole load of documentation or information to understand on the back of that and, and focusing it on that. So it's kind of like a private version of, uh, I guess, a chatbot on steroids, I guess. That can be certainly one application of it. Yes, I, I, you know, it has the, the, the number of different applications for LLMs are are wide ranging in many, right? I mean, and I think we're just beginning to see all the different places where they have a role to play. Um, as an example, you know, large language models in some cases can even go beyond language. Right. Another one of the foundational uh, model services that we're going to be offering is called BioNemo, which is actually using that same Nemo network, but with a very different set of data that's focused around accelerating drug discovery. Right. So, again, the, the applications for large language models, I mean, and you've probably seen as well, um, I believe it's called Copilot, which is now available on OpenAI, if memory serves, which can generate computer code. Right. So, you know, there's the number of things that LLMs can generate is it's that's to me the really interesting thing is that it goes beyond just language, you know, in, in air quotes, but rather uh, goes beyond it to look at things like generating computer code, being able to generate um, essentially uh, a genetic code, really, or, or, you know, in this case, basically molecules in the form of, you know, drug discovery. So, uh, well, one of the problems that I've seen uh, over and over again with GPUs, uh, the NVIDIA GPUs, is essentially their availability, right? Uh, often times, uh, and you talked about how you can auto scale and uh, go up and down, and but you know, if the availability is unknown, uh, the auto scale may not actually work, right? We often find uh, times uh, where uh, the uh, you know the nodes or the CPU GPUs are not available. So I was wondering, like you know, from an NVIDIA side, like what you know, what is there something that's being done to kind of address that problem? How do how how should customers plan for that, uh, which is going to be an uh, something they're going to hit uh, sooner or later, right? Yeah, and I, you know, I, I'm not d working deeply in terms of uh, you know working the supply chain side of things, but I can tell you we have a, we have a very strong supply chain. We've also recently, uh, in fact, we just announced with uh, with Azure, it was a very exciting announcement at our recent GTC conference, that you guys have gone into private preview with your own H100-based instance, which is our current flagship architecture based on the Hopper architecture, right? And that's delivering anywhere from, 
you know, three to upwards of, you know, we've seen recently in MLPerf as much as almost 7x more performance versus when we first introduced A100. And so, you know, we're bringing a lot more performance to bear in the form of H100. It's starting to deploy widely across CSP partners, including Azure, which we're, of course, very excited to see. And so we will continue to um, optimize our supply chain and keep our customers uh, supplied with the GPUs that they need to build out the data centers they, they need to build. And that is something we're, we're very focused on. Now, uh, from uh, we started talking about you know the generative AI uh, and and like what you know where do you where do you see the the future of uh, of, of AI and ML on Azure or on on any cloud for that matter, right? Like, what are some of the use cases? You you mentioned a few use cases, but are there any future use cases that uh, you see coming down like? You know, uh, bio is one of them that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. What are some of the other uh, scenarios where uh, people can start using things like generative AI and uh, ML? Sure. I mean, well, I think we've only just begun to even really uh, unpack all the places it can be used, right? I, I think what's been so exciting to see with generative AI, and Jensen has talked about this, generative AI in many ways turned everybody into a programmer, right? Because using prompts, you know, and basically in plain language, you have the ability to describe the thing that you want, right, as opposed to having to learn how to write computer code. And then basically the application can take that, work with it, and then give you back, you know, again, it can generate images, it can generate computer code, it can generate language, it can generate any number of things. In terms of places where this can be applied, I mean, just to name a few, um, certainly customer service. Um, you know, Russell mentioned, uh, you know, potentially chatbots on steroids uh, as one potential use case. Um but as well, content creation, obviously, you know, if you look at some of what's going on with text to image, and that's very quickly evolving towards text to video and even text to rendered 3D graphics, which, of course, kind of maps back to our original wheelhouse, which is where NVIDIA got its start. Right. Of course, sales and marketing materials and generating content there, um, you know, generating basically copy and summaries and descriptions, product design. Uh, education, fraud detection is another area where we see potential use cases. Healthcare, I touched on a few minutes ago as it relates to drug discovery and other types of medical imaging. Um, also, you know, gaming, and then I also touched on software development. So, I mean, there's a, those are just a few that I can think of off the top of my head, and there's probably uh, a dozen more um, that, that we haven't even thought of yet. You know, that's the other exciting thing when you put a technology like this out to the community is what they come back and do with it that surprises you, right? Because um, there's sort of the ways we think it will succeed, and then then there's sort of how it comes to the market and finds other ways to succeed beyond what we even we, we even we imagined. Yeah, I think all these scenarios, you know, you you dream up uh, a use case for how AI could help you solve something, and then for me as a kind of a, a an ex programmer now, I find it quite daunting. And what what I am enjoying is things like Codex that you mentioned, GitHub Copilot comes along and helps you with that because you can just say, right, I want to. I want to do something or other, and it, it, you know, as, as long as you explain it clearly and in enough detail, it, it figures out how to do it for you to some extent, and and you figure the rest out. A lot of that now is getting easier because of the building blocks that companies like Nvidia are putting in place, and right. I, and I'm seeing Nvidia AI enterprises as one of those. Are, are there kind of services out of the box that I can almost use? directly like facial recognition or um, text-to-speech, speech-to-text, all those kind of cognitive services that, that we we have as well. Is, it, is there an NVIDIA flavor of those? There is. Um, it's, an, it's an area of ongoing workforce, but we have what are called application frameworks, right? And they cover a lot of different 
uh, areas. You know, you mentioned, uh, as an example, uh, computer vision. Deep Stream is a great example for that one, um, which can be used for a whole wide variety of applications from uh, smart cities to retail to to any number of other applications where you need to be looking at a lot of video and doing video analytics and drawing insights from that is, is just one example. Um, there are, you know, there are just so, just one moment, I'm going to, I'm going to quickly just pull up a resource to quickly, so I don't forget a couple, because we have so many now. We have, you know, again, for medical imaging, um, we talked about, oh, this isn't the one. Okay, well, um, there are a number of what we, for instance, there is, there's Tokyo for building chatbots is one that I can think of off the top of my head. Um, we have um, um, what's called Morpheus, which is around physics-informed neural networks, right? Um, we have another one, actually, excuse me, Morpheus is for security, I misspoke, uh, but we have another one that is around physics-informed neural networks, which will come into play in places like Omniverse, like where you're looking to build what we call a digital twin, right? But we have speech AI, we have uh, also robotics, of course, with our Isaac um, application framework. So we have these different frameworks, um, many of which, you know, we also have code samples, we have, again, pre-trained networks, we have the ability for you to basically just kind of you know, do essentially, you know, low code, not quite no code, but certainly, you know, lower, lower amount of code to get your application up and running more quickly and start, you know, making sure that you'll be able to performance tune it and get it ready for deployment. Uh, now, Dave, uh, uh, kind of one last question I have is, uh, this is all great, but, you know, we've all here heard about the security concerns around uh, AI and ML, especially with generative AI, uh, customers are worried about their their own, uh, you know, information being used to further train the model, or sure. or, or showing up somewhere else uh, when they, when it uh, when it's not intended. Uh, so I was wondering, like, you know, the 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 enterprise uh, software that uh, you're releasing into Azure, does that touch upon any of these areas? Uh, you know, to to allay the customers' concerns here. Sure. Well, I mean, a great example of that would be um, our service around what's called Picasso, right, which is for text to image. It's sort of a business to business type play that we're doing. And it is uh, it's a really interesting service because not only do we have access to beautiful content, that content has been properly licensed. And we've got signed agreements in place with Getty Images as well as Adobe to make sure that anything built using those 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 bits of content as training material means that you as a customer can go ahead and build applications knowing you have content that's been properly secured, properly attributed, such that you won't have any other sort of headaches once you get deployed. You know, we've seen some stories in the news where, where certain types of content have been used for training, and the owners of that content coming back and go, that was done without my permission. And so there's still, I think, a lot of work to be done around figuring out for content owners, you know, what's the right model for allowing some of their content to be used for training while making sure that they get, you know, certainly attribution and then also looking into some forms of, of compensation. Right. I think there are some business models that can come out of that that I think we have yet to really see uh, fully take form. But ultimately, you know, you know, content licensing in some ways is actually not a particularly new business model. It's just now being applied to AI in the form of generative AI. That's that's great. Thanks so much for that, Dave. Uh, Russell, is there any other question for Dave? Otherwise, uh, we can wrap up over here today. This has been no, really I great. Don't think so. It, ju it just sets your mind off wondering about, you know, that there's a whole load of regulation around how AI should be used, or the regulatory services that dictate how companies can use AI and so on. But, um, you know, it's not that transparent, is it? Now, we've got these large language models. There's so much complexity in there. How a company has used that to come to a decision that's doing something, you know, affecting maybe your insurance premiums or, or whatever, 
um, it's just so complex. It's, it's such such an interesting area. And like you say, the, the thing about that that piece about crediting people for their IP that's built into that training model and how that will happen. Uh, yeah, it's mind blowing because I think I'm thinking about incremental payments the like of Spotify, where you get uh, you know a, a cent for a for a play somewhere or other or something like that. But um, mm-hmm. it could be it could become very complicated very very quickly, and we're going to need some more AI just to deal with the the logistics of how that's handled. Yeah, well, it's interesting you mentioned that. There's in, in addition to kind of the 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 attribution and the, and the potential commercial side of it. There's also the matter uh, of you know toxicity and content, right? Or, or or content that is sort of within certain boundaries, right? And so as an example, we recently introduced something called NVIDIA Guardrails, which is actually an open source uh, piece of software that we've put out there to help sort of guide some of the creation of content to put in place some of those again, as the name implies, guardrails to uh, to keep you know to keep applications sort of. Uh, within the realm of their intended use. In other words, you know, that that we'll try and, uh, and and keep, you know, toxic content sort of at bay, if you will, and keep you sort of within the domain that the application was intended to work, right? And so uh, that is something that we continue to, we just kind of released it. We just put a blog out about it uh, not too long ago, and we are now in the process of kind of rolling that out and um, and look forward to uh, seeing customers actually use that on on Azure. It can be used on any cloud platform, of course, but we, of course, want to see them using it on Azure as uh, just one more way to, uh, again, build applications that are safe, usable, and, and, you know, deliver what we, you know, what we believe are kind of appropriate and and hopefully sufficiently predictable results. Uh, As I mentioned, it is open source and it it leverages, um, you know, other tools. There's a specific um, open source tool uh, that it can take advantage of other toolkits. Um, One in particular that, uh, that we have looked at is what's called Langchain, for instance, um, which was recently uh, very highly rated on GitHub, right? That's just one of the ones that it can it can sort of uh, link into, and it can link into others. And because, of course, it's open source, it can be modified in a, on an as-needed basis, right? Yeah, that's great. I think the, the ethical and responsible use of AI is, is a really important thing to pursue. I think it's something we're always going to be catching up on because the technology as far as enabling AI is... Uh, is already out there right and it's growing faster than we can kind of think about ways in which people are potentially going to abuse it as well so yeah it's all great stuff though so it's uh it's just uh gets your mind going yes it does <laughs> well thanks so much dave this has been uh fascinating uh and uh, please send us any of those links that uh, and resources yeah. that you have mentioned you know some of the open source thing, links uh please uh, you know give to us we can put them mm-hmm. along with the show notes uh with the recording right Yep, will do. It was great being with you guys. Thank you, Sandy. Thanks very much, Dave. All right, thank you. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to the show. If you have any thoughts, questions, or just want to connect, find us on Twitter at Azure Podcast. Background music has been taken from ccmixer.org under the Creative Commons license. We hope you'll tune in again soon to keep learning with us.